0: Good to see you, bro. Miss you. Good to see you. Okay, this is the third message that I am giving in a far port, a far port, in a four-part series on the soul. And this morning's text is Matthew five verses one through twelve, and the title is "How a Live Soul Does Life." The Marks of Jesus' Followers. Last time I was with you, I talked about how a dead soul comes to life. The cost of becoming Jesus' follower. And today we want to look at what a follower of Jesus looks like. In Matthew, the end of this sermon, Jesus says this. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Listen, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Lord, open up our eyes. Let us behold you in your teaching. Open up our ears that in both hearing we will live out the implications of the truth that is in your eternal word. And I ask God that you would help minimize the mishearing of what this text is revealing to us. And I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. There are basically uh, three big ideas in this whole sermon. Uh, Verses 1 through 12, which are called the Beatitudes, uh, really set forth a theological basis for the rest of the sermon. And then secondly, there's a theme of a greater righteousness. And lastly, there is the theme of an alternative way to live. There are two ways, there are two builders, there are true prophets and false prophets. And the reason I want to bring this up is because, as I've said before, I want to reiterate you and I as human beings will give either the creator or the creature the right to command us how to live. You, even though you are an individual and you are an entity of yourself, there is nobody else like you. You are not an autonomous individual to the to the point where you don't listen to an idea so that your life goes one way or another. That's not an accident. Being created in God's image, He's designed us to live in such a way that if we listen to Him, our lives will flourish. And when we don't listen to Him, they don't flourish, they decay. The differences between life and death. And so when we're looking at this text, let's read. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The audience here, as we notice, it's a crowd. And the larger context... It's that while there is a crowd, there are also his disciples here. And I point that out because God does not have his spokesman fill in words that don't have meaning. And right here I want to point out that it is only disciples who have ears to hear what Jesus says and ears to hear and a heart to follow. What he says, because why last time I was with you, we said that when you see the surpassing worth of Christ, which is an act of the father revealing the son to us, the natural progression of that is you are now alive to God and therefore delight to do his will. And while we don't delight to do His will perfectly, nevertheless, the trajectory of our lives is Godward. And that's why we as believers experience the war that the non-believer does not. Romans 7. of There's a part of us that wants God, and then there's a part of us that fights Him. The non-believer, when, if you were... There once was a time when you weren't a believer... You didn't have that problem then. But if you're having that struggle now, that is an evidence that you belong to God, not that you don't love him. The nature of this sermon, it's been debated by many people throughout church history. And my take on it, it describes what kingdom subjects live like. Why do I use this word kingdom? Well, it's because it's all through Matthew. It has to do with Jesus the King. The fulfillment of what has previously been told now is seen in Christ Jesus the Messiah. And so the way I understand this, it's not only what kingdom subjects live like in an imperfect setting, but it also lays down the radical nature of, Of kingdom righteousness and it is unrivaled by no other literature the kind of righteousness that Jesus demands supersedes anything that Islam prescribes that traditional Chinese traditions prescribe that Buddhist traditions prescribe it goes far beyond your actions, and has everything to do with the attitudes that motivate your living. Now, much of the church has understood this sermon to be kind of like the Constitution of the United States. It's the primary source document on how to live an ethical life. And just like people say there's no original intent of the Constitution, there are those who say there's no original intent of this text. To which I would say, you need to think again. Because you are now making your view the view on which we must follow our understanding of this text. It's a vicious circle. You can't get around it. You can't get away from original intent. Where there's an author, there's original intent. Now, what we're confronted with here is some of the most profound literature on what it means to live an ethical life, on the issue of oughts as I pointed out, the setting in verses 1 through 2. Jesus saw the crowds, and instead of going away from them, He went to them. Jesus went where the people were. He did not wait for them to come to Him. Secondly, note that He sat down. When somebody would sit down in Jewish tradition, it demonstrated the accepted posture of somebody who had authority to speak, whether it was a school teacher, whether it was a synagogue, a rabbi. And notice that he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And this phrase is pregnant with Old Testament idiom. It is used in situations where there is a revelatory speaker and you need to hear what they're saying we see this where philip preaches to the ethiopian eunuch in acts 835 the ethiopian eunuch is reading and can't understand what's being said and it is talking about of isaiah it's talking about the suffering servant it's talking about jesus he explains the gospel to him we also see this where peter understands that god is not just the god of the jews but also the gentiles in acts chapter 10 and he has a radical worldview shift in his understanding of who is available to receive god's good news and then we also see this where Paul is before the pro-council Galio because of Jewish opposition to the gospel message in Acts 18.14. I want to point three things out here. First of all, where Philip is preaching, he, there is, uh, the text deals with a reconciliation. Okay? the reception of reconciliation. Secondly, where Peter understands that God is the God of the Gentiles also, we see that we have a clarification of the gospel. And then lastly, where Paul is before the proconsul, he gets persecuted. He gets persecuted. He gets rejected. Why? Because of the word of God. Because of the word of God. Now I say that to say this. The word now. According to John 1. Is going to give us the word. And so. Let us not have dull hearing. But let's peer into what it means. What are the marks of Jesus' followers? And so first of all. What we see here is that the poor in spirit are deeply joyful. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a fact. This is a fact. And this term blessed has to do with those who are privileged recipients of divine favor. Much like when Solomon spoke. When Solomon spoke and the people that heard him knew they were before somebody great. Remember in the gospel, Jesus said, there's somebody that's way greater than Solomon. Okay? But don't want us to miss this. What we are hearing today has no rival of importance, has no rival of joy significance and meaning for what it means to be human. Here, it's, it's difficult to not conclude that this word has to do with approval. That is that when man blesses God, we are approving, we are praising Him for the qualities that we see of His being And we see those through creation and also through this book. When God blesses man, God is graciously condescending to us and approving of us. Remember, all of this has a context. Now, in the Old Testament, blessed, the term makarios, in theological circles, These are known as macarisms, makarios, macarisms, okay? And it's always referring to people, not to things, okay? It's always referring to people, not to things. In the Old Testament, when somebody is blessed, it has to do with them having a full life. you ready? This is the picture we get of a full life from the Old Testament, the person obviously, is in relationship with God. The person has a wife or a husband, has children. Attached to this term is beauty, honor, wisdom, and piety, or really it's holiness. And so to be blessed, this is a very pregnant meaning. Now in the New Testament, when it's, Used It has to do with what we're awaiting. Final salvation. Eschatological salvation. And there's a tremendous amount of emotion in this text. It's forceful. And it's forceful because of what it does to human beings. Once human beings have a trajectory of damnation. And now because of God's mercy, there is a trajectory of value that is even that, that you and I have difficulty of grasping. So true happiness is not for the rich and secure, but for the poor and oppressed who are rich in pity, purity and peace. Now, does not mean that you can't be rich and and, uh, um, uh, you know you you can't go to heaven. No, 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 no. The point is context. You can be rich and love Jesus. You can be poor and love Jesus and you can be rich and hate him. You can be poor and hate him. Okay. The point here is we're talking about something that far surpasses the things we usually attach to that term to be poor. So the poor in spirit is an idiom that relates to one who is humble with regard to his or her own capacities when it comes to approaching God. It has to do with a humility that when you're approaching God, you recognize he doesn't need anything that I have that would cause him to say, oh, I approve of you what it means this understanding this will obliterate self-righteousness in us it just does it explodes it destroys it and to god be the glory if you understand this you recognize wow i've received mercy how in the world can i look down ultimately on somebody who doesn't see things the way i do and think I'm superior to them in value. You're not. Neither am I. They're image bearers. And so this humility does something. And we could translate this text that happy are those who recognize their need for God. And though there's concern for the materially poor in the scriptures jesus said you will always have the poor with you here and don't miss this it's talking about that we are all spiritual paupers before the king and we deeply need him now why is that so the fact is blessed are those who are poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and that's what it is the reason you're blessed. The reason there's deep joy that supersedes anything that the creature can give to you is because for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the reason why you are blessed is because if you are the poor in spirit, if you recognize your you're a spiritual pauper before God. Is because, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. That means that you become the possessor of something you previously did not possess. I'm in sales. And one thing you could see right away in the department, I'm in door and window sales. One of the things that I've noticed is this. Guys, get really happy, gals, get really happy, boy, when the sales are going good. When, of course, right? You want to make sales, you want to make more money. And they re- get really bummed when things aren't going well or you messed up an order and it costs you money and you're going to have to pay the company now money. You're not making, now, you gotta, now money's coming out of your pocket, right? Because we want to possess things, which is fine, but all of those things speak to a greater reality, which is the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, what is this thing that we possess as his people? It has to do with what awaits the new heaven, the new earth. This life really is not all there is. This is part of the story. It's not the entire story, you guys. Kingdom of heaven is synonymous with kingdom of God. So I could summarize this verse like this because the royal reign of god the creator is the possession of the poor in spirit those who recognize their deep need for god they are blessed they are objects of divine favor not wrath and that is why as believers we should really be marked by joy in our lives and i am not saying that you cannot have seasons that are difficult and it seems like oh my gosh You're a Christian? Why aren't you joy and giddy? No, that's not the point. What I'm saying is this, is that your circumstance is not where your hope needs to be, nor where my hope needs to reside. And so as we do what the psalmist does, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. There comes a time through hard times where we need to speak the truth to our souls, so that we might reflect the reality of, the ne- uh, 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 of, uh, of what awaits. Doesn't mean we don't feel. That's for sure. No, all of these texts there is a lot of deep emotion. It's not just cerebral. It 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 it, 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 it weds your emotions, your 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 decision making. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, those who mourn are deeply joyful. So first of all, these two things, who wants to be poor and who wants to mourn? Usually, nobody in their right mind wants to be poor, and nor do they want to mourn. But if we allow the text to reveal to us what it means, we come to understand it's almost like upside down from how we are used to thinking in the world. So the fact is that those who mourn are blessed. Fact. Who are those who mourn? These are the ones who lament or mourn for the dead. That is, to grieve with a grief that so takes possession of the whole person that you can't hide it. And it's specifically in this context that it doesn't have to do with mourning over death. It has to do with mourning over wickedness and mourning over oppression. In other words, the believer is not to be indifferent to the plight of humanity. The believer is not to say, oh well, God is sovereign. With an attitude that you don't engage. The reality of injustice and the reality of oppression. Now, this weeping, this mourning, really has to do with a weeping and a mourning over sin and what sin has done. How sin has adversely affected the whole created order. I'll tell you this right now. Unless we meditate on this, and God helps us. Not only will we be indifferent to our own sin. Because it begins there. But we will be indifferent to the sins of others. And I want you to understand, Jesus calls us to be in touch with this stuff. Not to say, forget it, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with it, I don't want to hear it. Romans, for example, 724, Paul says this, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Talking about his struggle with sin. He mourned over that. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 2, he addresses sexual immorality. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Again, Second Corinthians 12, 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality and sensuality which they have practiced. So those who mourn, mourn over the things that God laments over. The things that destroy human flourishing. The things that so many of us get caught up into and dabble in. The sin that for a season is so attractive, but it's deadly to us. Now, here's the reason, which is, which is fantastic to me. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Reason, for they shall be comforted. For they shall be comforted or encouraged or cheered up. Now, this term is a passive term, which means you don't make this comfort happen. It is done to you. God acts upon you and upon me. Be I through words or favorable situational switch. Something happens where all of a sudden you are in the dumps because you're feeling and you hate what God hates. And and then before you know it, he comforts you. He comforts you. Wow. 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all comforts, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may encourage those who are being afflicted with the comfort with which we've received. You're grieving. You're grieving. You lost a grandma. Let God comfort you. You know what you're grieving over? What Jesus grieved over. When Jesus grieved over Lazarus' death, even though he knew he was going to raise him up, Jesus wept. He grieved over that. Why? Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. When you grieved over the loss of your grandparents or your parents it is right to mourn it's not the way it ought to be and there is comfort for us we do not mourn without hope Now, the first two Beatitudes, they're alluding to a Messianic blessing out of Isaiah 61, verse 3. I'm going to read this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I need water. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the afflicted he has sent me to, oh, blah, 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 to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion giving them a garland instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting so they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So the Messiah comes to give the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. These blessings will only be fully realized at the consummation as Revelation 7 has revealed to us. So, can I summarize this text? Because the ones... Sin and oppression, those things God hates, even death itself, they will be comforted both now and in the future consummation. They are recipients of divine favor, not wrath. And I was thinking about this this morning, and this, I, oh boy, do I need to work on this. Do you realize that for the patient, The fruit of the patient, and I don't mean somebody who's sick, I mean the individual who is exercising the virtue of being patient. Do you realize that their meals are always better than those microwaved? Do you realize that the harvest of the patient farmer is much better than the prematurely picked fruit? Do you realize that the house that is built it seems like it's taken forever but there's great care laying down that foundation so that when the winds come the earthquakes come or whatever that house once it's built it'll be able to stand do you realize that to get rich quickly is foolishness to lose weight fool to lose weight quickly also Long-term, it's foolishness. Why? Because we're not establishing the necessary habits, foundation, for long-term flourishing. Do you realize if you pick up the guitar and you play it once a month and you don't get it immediately... That you're not going to reap the rewards of the one who picks it up every day, is on that thing for hours, bleeding fingers and all. What'll happen? You know what'll happen. One's song will sound horrible, the other one is majestic. Why? Because it takes time for skill to develop. And when that skill comes to fruition, it brings about a fruit. That is beautiful to behold and also brings flourishing to those around it. Number three, those who are gentle are deeply joyful. <laughs> I really need to grow on this one. Those who are gentle are deeply joyful. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, fact. Because your greatest need has been met by God the Son rescuing you from God the Father's wrath, it's all good. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like it. I know. I know. That's the fight of faith. That's the fight of trusting God's word as opposed to the creatures. So for the ancients, the gentle, the humble, the considerate, they did not rank this as a virtue. This is not a virtue. Um You know, for you to be poised and and level-headed and and to have composure. You know, sometimes it was negative and and sometimes it was positive. But what Jesus is doing here, He is elevating this term to nobility. He is elevating this term in a way that it had never been elevated before. Now, I hope you understand that the Beatitudes, Makarios, the Blesseds, they presuppose a new heart. They assume a new heart. They cannot not assume a new heart if you're just reading what it's saying. The natural man does not find happiness In the qualities Christ mentions here. Jesus refers to himself as one who is gentle and humble in heart. Moses was considered to be a gentle man and a humble man. And this is not weakness. What this is, is gentleness of strength. There's a proverb that says, Greater is he who controls his spirit than he who takes a city. There's something about that quality where you can control your temper knowing you can utterly and totally overwhelm the person person that's causing you anger. That takes way more strength than to just act out. The person that is restraining acting out is reflecting the image of God that person is reflecting the patience of God when that person actually has been offended in reality and they do not retaliate. So this term gentle in the Old Testament, it's not used of God, but primarily of the social position of a servant, of an inferior and so it carries that nuance of being humble. Okay? Numbers 12.3 says this, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. One thing we know about Moses, he was no lightweight. What kept him from going into the promised land? What, what did he do? He hit the rock. Remember, he had to flee Egypt, because he killed an Egyptian that was going to that kept hurting his countrymen. Moses was no lightweight. Moses had an anger issue, and yet the text says that he was the most humble man on the earth. Wow, no one greater and more humble than Jesus. Yet we see Jesus show and demonstrate his anger when it comes to when his father's house is being used as a house of merchandise or when those who are in authority to teach the people are leading them astray from God's truth remember when Aaron and Miriam questioned whether or not Moses actually heard from the Lord because he got married to an Ethiopian woman she was dark black you think this issue of ethnicity and the tensions is new do you think it will ever go away not until the new heaven and the new earth in matthew and only in matthew is this term used it's used one time And this, Jesus uses of Himself. In Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. For I am meek or gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. So blessed are the gentle. Why? Reason? For they shall inherit the earth. Now you got it you got got yeah they shall inherit the earth. Proverbs says that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. Those children did not earn that inheritance. It was given to them. You have received an inheritance from your parents. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. It was something your parents decided to do long ago. Why is that important? Contextually. Because it once again points to the fact you don't earn this stuff. You can't. It's beyond you and me. It's beyond us. So the the, the verb to inherit often refers to entrance into the promised land. But the allusion specifically here is out of Psalm 37, verse 9 through 11. And this is a messianic psalm, again, which reads like this. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evil doers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Entrance into this promised land became a pointer toward entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And I'm thinking about this again, the analogy of being patient. Right? The goal of the seed is not. To plant it and to water it. The goal of the seed is to plant it, to water it, and to wait for its fruit. The goal of the Christian begins as the seed of the word of God is implanted in us by the spirit of almighty God. And the goal is not just this life. It is the new heaven and the new earth where we will reign and rule with Him, world without end. And I promise you, there will not be a second of boredom. There will not be a moment of indifference. But there will be increasing joy as we discover who God is, and as we live out the implications of it, in community. That should make you do flips. I mean, if I could do what Bo Jackson used to do, I'd do it, but I can't. That should make us do somersaults. That's got to arrest your attention. And if it doesn't, Come on! It's got to! Paul elsewhere states that believers may now possess all things in principle. That's 2 Corinthians 6.10. And the reason is because they belong to Christ. What Matthew is doing here, he's directing our attention further to the renewal of all things. To the renewal of all things. Et, let's face it, everything is decaying. Everything is born and everything dies. And a lot of people say, well, that's life. Actually, no, that is death as a result of our rebellion of, uh, in Adam, in the garden. And Christ is going to reverse that. And he began the reversals of that curse When death could no longer hold him. Do you know why? Because he was sinless. That's why the grave had no right to hold him. Because he was sinless. And guess what? Believers share in that sinlessness on the one hand. Because it is imputed to us through Christ's righteousness. This is awesome. I mean, this is so amazing. And the implications of that righteousness is not, well, as long as I said a prayer, I can live any old way I want. Are you kidding me? You've bought into a lie and you're getting ripped off of God's joy because you don't think holiness is the way to go. But it actually is. It is. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. At the end of Matthew 5, He says, You shall be holy even as your Father in heaven is holy. God wants us to share in His holiness, saints. He calls us to it. We can't share in His omnipresence or His omnipotence or His omnisapience. He's all wise. We don't share in that. But He definitely wants us to share in His holiness As we rule and reign with him. Do you need any more purpose in life? Fourth, and this will be the last one, because I'm going to do this in two parts. Those who hunger for righteousness are deeply joyful. So the poor in spirit are deeply joyful. Why? For there's the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Blessed are those who mourn. They're deeply joyful. Why? Because they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. And now, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. This is amazing. Listen, please. Fact. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fact. There is deep, deep joy for the person walking in this. I've got to have more of God. I've got to have more of God. I'm not satisfied. What do you mean you're not satisfied? Yes, I'm satisfied, but i got to have more. Why? Because God created me to be that way. <laughs> he created me. He designed me to be that way. For His glory, not for my destruction. Those who hunger and thirst, this term is, its figurative. And these two terms, they describe having a strong desire, a strong passion to attain some goal. And come on, can I see the hands? All of us here have passion and desire. There are some things that really, really Move us. What what is it? What are those things? God created that thing in us so that we will do this. He's out for your joy. He really is. And that's Bible. That is not Piper. Do you hear me? That's Bible. It is not Piper. For those who don't know what I'm saying, John Piper is... Affected a lot of how a lot of evangelicals think today. He's a ble- a, been a blessing. But that's Bible. That's text. And here's the thing that amazes me the most. It is not having this deep desire and hunger to attain a goal that does not exist. Because there's a lot of things that we desire and want to have a goal. And we are completely and totally delusional. Just are. I mean, you can have, I can have, a, you know, this great desire, you know, to be this uh, 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 amazing soccer player. Ain't going to happen. Dude, your days are came and went. No way, man. You're, you're on the downside of, the, of that hill. Your body is falling apart. It's not going to happen. What's real and existing that's lacking here? I've got to have more of God. He's real. He's there. And you want Him? Go get Him. He's real. He's there. If you want Him, you want more of God, go get Him. Get yourself in this Word. Pray. Refuse to be defeated. When God says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Refuse to be defeated. I'm not saying don't feel. I'm not saying don't mourn, right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying refuse to be that. That that's the thing that you are placing your hope in. You place your hope in God. And if you're hungry, He's going to fill you. He's going to fill you. He's going to fill you. Righteousness has to do with being upright. And here it's the compelling motive for how we live our entire life. In the Old Testament, this term means to be straight, just, to be right. And the Greek term for this means to do justice, to vindicate, or to declare righteous when it's used of God as the righteous one, it has to do with He who acts rightly in all of His works and in all of His judgments. I'm going to say that again. When it talks about God, it has to do with how He acts and it is always right and good and true and just. So for you and I, to think we've got the moral high ground on God is an indication we are deeply, deeply misinformed. Number one. Number two, got a hard heart. Number three, we're really not thinking well. And if that doesn't change, what awaits us is His just wrath. For the non-believer, for the believer, get more Bible in you. Ask God, cry out to God to help you connect the dots of this wonderful book. You'll never exhaust it, ever. So God's righteousness is demonstrated both in His punishment of the wicked... in his delivering Israel from her enemies in the punishment of the wicked, you could read uh, Psalm seven verses nine through 17 in the delivering of Israel. Again, you could read Psalm nine, seven through nine. That Psalm is a good to go to Isaiah 46, 11 through 13. Now, one scholar has noted this about modern scholarship. Listen up. Modern Bible scholars often. And I would say. Christians today often overemphasize the benevolent aspect of God's righteousness in the Old Testament and lose sight of the legal and punitive aspects. But God's righteous judgeship is seen in the punishment of the lawbreaker as well as in the deliverance of the justified. And it's noteworthy, however, that the positive aspect of God's righteousness is more common in the Old Testament while the punitive aspect is more closely associated with God's wrath. Now, in the New Testament, this term, which is dikaios, it's closely linked to the kingdom of God, where the Son of Righteousness, who is Christ Jesus, fulfills what God has previously promised regarding the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. This righteousness is based in the God of creation, who in the perfections of his eternal being is the standard of what is right and wrong. The creator, not the creature, is the standard. This attribute of righteousness is closely related to God's holiness, his moral perfection on the one hand. And His moral law as an expression of that holy perfection, on the other hand. This righteousness is attained through trust in God's cre- uh, 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 gracious gift. Not through any effort of the creature. And while it is a gift, this gift is not static It produces in the possessor of that gift a Godward trajectory in life where the imitation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is the goal. Hence, to think I can live any old way I want, I would say to you if you're a believer and think that after you say a prayer, it doesn't matter because it's all quote unquote under the blood. You need to read the Bible. You really do. You need to stop listening to false teachers because I promise you they're leading you astray. This righteousness has been disputed. On the one hand, it's seen as Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to us. It is outside of us and therefore we can do nothing, which is true. It affects our justification. And yet, on the other hand, those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness, which really has to do with doing God's will and doing God's justice, is something that you want to grow in. These people are grieved, right? They mourn over all the unrighteousness. And it causes them to be homesick. You ever been homesick as a believer? Man, Lord, it would be far better to be with you. I am so tired of this life. And yet, like Paul said, you know, it's better if I stick around a little bit longer for you. I hope that can be said of our lives. That our lives are so Godward that when we have those moments where it's like, boy, you know, I'd like to just go home now. That we would have the attitude, because really in our lives, God is really working a lot of amazing things through us. Because of his kindness. And we're really affecting a lot of the people around us. And we recognize it's better that I stick around a little bit longer. This righteousness produces in those who have it. A Godward trajectory. As I've said. uh, Peter points this out second peter 3 verses 10 through 13 but the day of the lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of god Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Reason. For they shall be satisfied. Now, this satisfaction, it can refer to the experiences that we have when we're hungry or when we're thirsty, Right? And we, and we eat, and we drink, and we're going, ah. but here, this means for a fact that in the future, whenever that occasion arises, righteousness will act on the thirsty soul and satisfy it, fill it. Promise you, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, which really is hungering and thirsting for God, right? That's what it is. Jesus, I need more Jesus is another way of saying I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's really same way, same thing. God promises you'll be filled. He does not withhold anything from those who walk uprightly before Him. See, God's word can be trusted. Let God be true and every man a liar. And as I stated before, and I'm going to state again, you and I have a choice of who it is we will permit to command us how to live. It will either be sourced in the creature or in the creator. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And you can take that to the bank. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, like Jesus, you said, even in this text, further on, that heaven and earth will pass away. But your words by no means shall pass away until all has been accomplished. For as the heavens are assuredly above us and the earth, the ground is assuredly beneath our feet. Your word is even more sure than that. And so, Lord, when we look at the creation, help us be reminded of the fact of the faithfulness your word assures us. Your word is sure, your word is perfect, your word is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. By your word, we understand that the worlds were created so that the things that are seen were created by the things that are not seen. By your word, Lord, you bring the dead to life. By your word, you justify many. By your word, you help us in our sanctification. And by your word, by the faithfulness of your word, you will receive us into glory so that we may rule and reign with you world without end. Amen.